we approach Romans. If you have read Romans or never read Romans, I would like you all to approach this the same. Um, sometimes this book can see it, be seen as very controversial, maybe, um, and sometimes it seems like this church says this about it and this church says that about it, but we're here to see what the Word of God says, figure out what the context it's in, and see what it's really saying and where we can apply it relevantly to our lives today. Um, so I just, I just want to remind you to take a spiritual formation approach to the Scripture, especially when you're seeing this. Um, we approach Scripture so that it can form us, not inform us. There's a lot of information, but we want this to change us, right. to make us more like Jesus, to make us more who we're supposed to be. That's a lot of the purpose of this book, actually. Um, and, and to approach it with the expectancy that, you know, whatever this says, I want to obey. Yeah. Because it's God's word, and he gave it to us to help us, not to condemn us. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there. If you've read it through recently, that might be fresh on your mind or heart. Um, but here's the, the thought that I want you to approach it with. There's this story of this Zen master. He's up in the mountains, and this guy's like, I am a pro at everything. I need to grow, and I need to learn more things. So he goes to this Zen master. He climbs the mountain, and it's this, like, two-day journey or something. And as he approaches the Zen master, he's like, okay, guy, what are you here for? And he basically just starts rambling of all the questions he has. So the Zen master's listening. He's like, okay, you're a little eager. Let's chill for a second. And then he just doesn't answer him, any of his questions. And he's starting to think, okay, this is a huge waste of my time. You have nothing to say to me. You're not answering a single one of my 100,000 questions. So the Zen master says, let's have tea. Maybe that will help you answer some of your questions. Oh, yeah. And he's just furious, like, I need to just go. He continues asking questions. And so this man, this master, Basically, his Zen master just like knows a lot of stuff and he has a lot of wisdom, okay? So he starts pouring this tea, okay? He pours this tea cup and continues to pour the cup and continues to pour the cup. And before you know it, the cup is full. And just before it begins overflowing all over the place onto the saucer, onto the table around it, the, the man who came for the knowledge says, stop, the cup is full. There is nothing left there's no more room left for any more of what you're pouring. And the Zen master, this is the big knowledge, is you are so full of your predispositions, your opinions, yeah. your perspectives, your ideas, that I don't have anything to offer you because you're full of what you think you know. Yeah. If you want what I have to offer you, if you want, say, what the scripture has to offer you, we need to start, and this sounds backwards, but I just want you to understand this. We need to start by first empty your cup. Empty your cup. Come empty in a way, ready to be filled with truth and freedom and love, okay? Yeah. So that's the approach we want to take to this because if you can come empty approaching Romans, your whole perspective on God will change. It'll change. I can promise you that. It's going to be beautiful. Yeah. It is a beautiful book, and it has an amazing message. So, yeah. so this is going to be our prayer, uh, and we're going to pray it uh, every week. Uh, we're going to pray, God, change us through the reading of the Word. Let's pray. Jesus, Father God, we pray that we would be able to come today and approach this from a pr perspective of 
not knowing it all, God, but Lord, that we may come empty, waiting to be filled, ready to be filled, eager to be filled, eager to learn what you would have us to do, what you have us to say, what you would have us to, how we, how we would apply it and approach life because of it, God. God, we are so grateful for your word. It's so holy, Lord, Father, God, that you breathed on it and you bring life to it and it can even transform our lives even today. And right now, Father, God, we just put it all behind us and move ahead together in this, uh, in this amazing book. Amen. Amen. I'm going to continue kind of on that same thought that she did just for just a couple minutes as we start to frame this introduction. Again, today's really going to be introductory to this book. Uh, This book builds and builds and builds and builds and builds on each other, and the series is going to build and build and build and build and build on it. Like each sermon will build to the next, to the next, especially the first eight or so are going to be, if you miss one, just go back and watch it. Don't just leave it and move on and think you can skip it. You might get a little bit lost, which is unfortunate for people joining a little bit later in the journey, but we're going to, it'll, it'll work out. It'll have fun. It'll be good. But kind of like along the lines of what Don was saying, what a lot of people tend to do when we read the Bible, when we read the Holy Scriptures, is we focus on the parts that kind of already line up with our theology. That's kind of like, that's kind of what we like to do. We like to read the parts that uh, line up with our theology or line up with our worldview or make us feel like, yeah, we're doing that already. We're doing a good job. So we can kind of pat ourselves on the back and affirm ourselves like, yeah, you know, you're doing a good job. But the Bible's job is not to affirm you. That is not the point of the Bible. Its job is not to affirm you. Uh, The Bible's job, to an extent, is to inform you. But like she was saying, it can't just be information, right? The Bible is actually alive. The Bible says says that the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is alive, and it is alive because the Holy Spirit breathes life into it, which means that in your current situations, in your circumstances, something in these ancient texts can come alive for you and give you wisdom to how to live right now in this world and in your life. That's something very, very, very powerful. So the Bible's job is not to affirm you. It is to inform you, but it is the Holy Spirit's job then who, through breathing on that and through giving it power, his job is to convict you through that and to help you to live a better life than the life that you are living right now in this world. And, and you only do that through Jesus, as we're going to see throughout this book. So what simply could be information, just words on a page, actually has the power to bring about a life transformation for you. Not, but not just in your life, because we all want to change in our lives, but it's, it's not about you. That's the bigger picture and what you're going to start to realize. Not only just transformation in your life, but also in a way that the whole world begins to be transformed because of you and because of how this is taking shape in you and what this is doing through you. But it's very easy to read the Bible as just sterile words on a page and come out literally no different. It's easy to read it through the perspective that you already view life through and find the things that you want to find so that you can continue to keep viewing life in the way that you view it. That is how most of us read the Bible. We read it constantly framing God into whatever box we are already convinced that he lives in. It's very hard to take it the other way. Like she was saying, it's very hard to take it from the perspective of, um, this is something I've seen before. This is something I've studied before. This is something I know. And then to be able to take that and approach that with fresh eyes, ready to learn something new from it, that's, that's very hard to do. But we can say this, she, she already said it, without a doubt, 
Since we began studying this book, Don and I have been studying this book together massively. Like we read it all the time. We've been studying and studying and studying it and picking it apart. And you should be reading this along with us. That's part of why we gave you journals. Read it at home. Take notes. Make, write down questions. But as we've been reading this book, it has been so refreshing to us. It's been so good for us. It's absolutely beautiful. I used to read this as law. I used to read this as uh, bondage, as judgment, as the harshest stuff in the entire Bible because it, it does say a lot of the most difficult, kind of harshest things that the Bible does say. But when we began to comprehend why, and even more than that, when we began to grasp the bigger picture of what it is that Paul is doing here, it is beginning to change our lives, honestly. And we're continuing to be transformed by it. I believe it's having an impact on our marriage. I believe it's starting to shape and help our marriage grow. I believe it's having an impact on the way that we're relating to our children. I believe it's going to have a huge impact on the way that we minister to other people, the way that we minister to the broken, the way that we meet people where they are. And I believe with all my heart that it will do the exact same for you. But you have to approach it ready to learn. And you have to approach it, like she said, with your glass empty or your cup empty, your cup ready to be filled. So what we want to do today is we're going to start with a tiny bit of background on this book. It's not going to be like an overwhelming amount of history, but we're going to give you a tiny bit of background on the book of Romans. Uh, and, then, and then this week and next week will kind of both be like that. We're going to take two weeks to get through the first 15 verses of the book. So we're going to do one through seven now. The next week we'll pick up back again at seven and go through 15. And then we're going to really start getting into a lot of the meat. But we will be building, I mean, there's a lot of meat in even this, you'll see um, in a minute. But we, we want to build a framework um, over these first few weeks that hopefully you can keep you can keep in your mind and you can kind of revert back to as we go on and go on and go on and go on. So take notes, take, to pay attention to the things that stick out to you and kind of let it build off of that. So very simply put, Romans is a letter about God. It's a, it's a letter about God, a beautiful letter written to a diverse group of people working to show these people, all of these people, that the gospel is for all of them. It is for all of them. The theme of the entire book, without a doubt, is the gospel. That is the theme of the book of Romans. In fact, a lot of scholars actually consider Romans to be the gospel according to Paul. And the thing that actually gives this letter, this is actually fascinating, and you need to catch this. The thing that actually gives this letter like a little bit more, almost added credibility in some ways uh, than even some of the other accounts that are written in the Bible about Jesus is this, the book of Romans was for sure written before 60 AD. Probably around 55 to, a lot of people believe up to about 58 AD is when it was written, which means this book was written 100% for sure at least a decade before 70 AD, which is when the temple was destroyed. The temple meant everything to Israel. It meant everything to the Jews. It was just as important to them as the law. When Moses was given the law, he was also given the instructions for building the tabernacle, which was the, basically the, the, it was a tent that functioned as the temple uh, while they wandered. And then King David eventually had in his heart, hey, God needs a house. So then he had this dream to build an actual tabernacle, an actual, an actual temple in which his son Solomon eventually did. And he built, the, he built that temple, but that temple was later destroyed by Babylon. But, and then eventually another temple was built, and that's the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, and that temple was the hub of the world of religion. It was the hub. 
Everybody went there to worship. Now, Paul actually was killed in 64 AD, so he was killed before it even came down, which is actually really, really interesting. Whereas the other Gospels, with the possible exception of Mark, they were all written after the temple was destroyed. That's when they were, they, they were telling stories that happened before the temple, but they were written after. And that would have had a very significant impact on the way they wrote and the way that they even understood to a degree a lot of what Jesus was saying and what the things that he said actually meant. But Paul speaks of the temple. And he speaks of people being the temple. People being the image bearers of God. Long before the temple ever even came down, which would have had... Um, which would have had an enormous um, implications to a world that has this huge temple right there, right in front of them. And they're saying, what are you talking about? You're talking about the temple. This is the temple. The temple is standing there. Paul would have sounded crazy when he starts saying the things he does about the temple. But Paul had an understanding of Jesus's words that other people just did not have at that time. For most people in that day, the idea of worshiping anywhere else the idea of, of God being there without a temple, man, that was an unheard of idea. The idea of God being present anywhere that, God, that the temple wasn't, man, that was a foreign idea. It was an impossible idea. So now, um, today, a lot of people actually consider in some ways Romans to be even more genuine of a retelling of the gospel of Jesus because of that perspective, um, which gives it so much more significance. So this letter was written before every single gospel was written. Yet he says the same things. That makes sense. Romans uh, is by far the longest of all of Paul's writings. The, uh, of the 13 letters that are believed to be written by Paul, we, we will exclude Hebrews. Some people think he wrote Hebrews. Others people think he don't, didn't write it. We're going to excluding that. The average word count in Paul's letters was about 1,300 words. And in Romans, it's 70, over 7,100 words. It's an absolutely massive volume compared to his other letters. And most people believe that Paul wrote it from Corinth uh, when he was doing a missionary uh, journey there and he was staying there. Now, the context of writing is simple. Paul wants to go to Rome. We're going to really focus in on that a lot next week. It's very significant. But he wants to go to Rome. He wants to preach to Rome. And he wants to use Rome as kind of like a stepping stone, a springboard to springboard him into Spain. Because Paul's entire life was consumed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. To him, there was nothing else that mattered besides the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so his address to this church, it was fueled by his desire to go and to preach to the greatest city in the entire world. Because of course to him, he's like, man, if I can start a fire in the hearts of the people in Rome, that thing is going to spread across the entire world. So he just pours it all out in this letter. Now, this letter uh, seems to be kind of broken up into four sections, really four movements of thought that really flow into each other. So the thing starts in one through four, which is where we're going to spend kind of a little bit more time. We're going to take one through four a little bit more slowly as we're building this series. But it, the concept of one through four is that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. But really, one through four then springs us into five through eight, and it shows us how, okay, if God did this, this is what should happen to us. This should take hold in our lives. It's how the gospel actually gives us new life, not just in heaven, but here and now. How, as this begins to take shape in us, we begin to live lives that reflect this. We begin to live lives that actually make the world a better place because of it. 
then these two, then basically the first half of the book really lays this solid foundation which springboards us into 9 and 11, which is about how Jesus fulfilled God's promise to Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, God made several covenants with Israel, uh, and, and really even with creation, you know, we did a whole seri- sermon on this. He made one with Adam, he made one with Noah, he made one with Abraham, which Israel really cleans, they really, really clean to the one uh, in Genesis 15 with Abraham. He made one to Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, he made one to David. Tons and tons of, co- of these covenants that are, he makes with them. And then they're all wondering, God, how are you going to ever fulfill these covenants? Are you going to ever fulfill them? And of course, Israel never did their end of the bargain, but God always promised that he would do his and he would keep his end of the deal. And 9 through 11 actually shows us, hey, God did fulfill it. He did it through Jesus. And then 12 through 16 is all about how the gospel is what will bring the church together, which we all know is a very, very good thing. So we're going to get into this and we're going to actually begin to read this together, um, starting at Romans 1, 1 through 7. And you're going to notice this, that there's like a build and a build and a build. So today you might be like, man, um, I, man, I, I mean, it's going to be, I, I think today's going to be good, but it's it's going to be a little bit foundational for you so that it can springboard you into what's going to come in the second week and in the third week, and especially when we get into the fourth and fifth weeks. You're like, oh my gosh, how long is this going to go? It's going to go a very long time. <laughs> but it's going to be worth it. Okay, so this is what it says. Romans 1, 1 through 7. You can uh, follow along on the screen. Um, and you have them in your journals. It's Paul. It begins by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To, those, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice all of the commas. That entire thing is one sentence. One sentence, entire thing. Uh, I'm going to pray again because you can never pray too much, and then we're going to dive into this particular scripture. Father God, Lord, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father God, for giving us another new year, another new chance to study your word, a chance to wrestle with the things that are in it as we try to navigate God. What does this look like for us? We, Lord, again, we, we ask that it'll come alive in us today, God. And Holy Spirit, right now, just I speak, pray that you would speak through me, that everything that you'd have me to say, I would say, let everything else fall to the ground before it ever comes out of my mouth. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so look at how Paul begins this letter. Okay, just look at this, take some time, read this a couple times, read this introduction. See, most of us, we plow through this. As if Paul is just introducing himself to his audience by kind of giving his merits and showing us, uh, hey, this is why I'm qualified to talk to you and to tell you these things, and I'm someone you should listen to, right? That's kind of the way that we read this. But what Paul is actually doing is he's actually introducing Jesus to a world that does not even know they're looking for him by reminding us 
that the gospel is powerful enough to save even him. See, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, Paul stops talking about Paul right after he says Paul. But we're, we're going to take a moment to actually explore Paul a little bit so that you can have a better idea of just who it is that's writing and what it means when Paul says an apostle. What does it mean to be an apostle? An apostle is someone who is sent or is commissioned. Literally, it's someone who has been sent forth with orders, right? So you've been given a specific job, a task to go and do, and your life is set apart for that task, okay? That's what it means to be uh, an apostle. And he, of course, was set apart for the task of carrying the gospel into the world. So the word gospel, we're going to do a sermon just on the gospel in two weeks, uh, so we're going to get more into it. But it means good news or it means joy news. It comes from the concept of a messenger who's carrying a message that will bring the hearers good news. So in, in Rome, a lot of times it was a decree from Caesar that went out to everybody and everybody was going to be excited by what this news was. Uh, uh, sometimes it had to do with battles and people who have won battles and things like that. That's, you'd be happy to hear whatever the news is. Now, obviously the the gospel, the, the message of Jesus is a proclamation of a different sort that maybe people would have uh, not been so much expecting, right? And the gospel message in just a really condensed, condensed version is essentially this. It's that, that you and I, though we're sinners and we once deserved death for all the things that we've done, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He died in our place. And now when God looks at you, he doesn't see who you were anymore because of what Jesus did. Now when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. That is the gospel. It's just like what Austin said. It's all about the person on that other side of that chasm. God sees Jesus when he looks at you. And now, because the gospel is more full than just individual, and now, because of that, you can now live this life today differently than yesterday, because as Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right now, and you and I get to be a part of making that move forward in our world. So Paul has been set apart for this good news message, and he dedicates this entire book to this message. Now, the book of Acts tells us about Paul's conversion and his call to apostleship. So in the earlier chapters of Acts, he's spoken of as a man named Saul. And the Bible says that Saul uh, treated Christians just absolutely horribly. Uh, Acts, I think it's 8, says that Saul actually approved the execution of a Christian named Stephen. He said I, he approved that execution. Um, uh, 9 1 says that he would breathe out threats of murder uh, and, and violence against, against Christians, against the disciples of the Lord. And then one day he's on a journey. He's on the road, he's on, he's on a journey to a place called Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shines on his face, and, he, uh, and he, he heard Jesus, and Jesus is saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And right away, Saul knows that's Jesus. He's, he's blinded by the light, but he's like, I know that that's Jesus. He says, what, you know, basically, what, what do you want? What do you want, Lord? And, he, and so what Jesus tells him, he says, he says, you know what, you need to enter the city, and you will be told what to do. So when Paul goes to the city, Jesus speaks to another man, named, a man named Ananias. And this man, he goes and he says, hey, Ananias, you need to go and you need to pray for Saul. 
because Saul has a purpose. And, and, and Ananias, just to show you how kind of a bad of a dude that Saul was, Ananias gets, uh, like, literally gets visited by the resurrected Christ. And he still says no. He's like, dude, I don't want to do that. Do you know how bad he treats Christians? I don't think that that's a good idea. And Jesus, this is what Jesus says to him. It's very important what he says to Ananias. You have to notice this. He says, you need to go. For he, being Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now this is very, very important for the way that we read and the way that we understand the book of Romans. This is very, very important. Saul's mission field is Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, the Jews. So his, he, he, he has been given a mandate, a very specific mandate, a mission that, that really set him apart from some of the others because he specifically also has a ministry to the Gentiles. Which, as we're going to see uh, next week, the church in Rome is very, very divided between both of these groups. But he's called to bridge that gap and reach them both. Paul also had, uh, was a very rare instance uh, historically, which actually made him a good candidate for this. So, see, Paul was a, a rabbi. Paul was a Jewish rabbi. He knew the scriptures very, very well. He knew the Torah. He adhered to the law. But he also was a Roman citizen. He'd never been to Rome, but he had citizenship in Rome. So there were automatic bridges that were built for him that would have made that job a little bit more obvious that, hey, this is the man for this job. But I want you to notice this last line. I will show him how much he must suffer. He must suffer for the sake of my name. Man, I'm calling you to do something great, and it means you're going to suffer. Now, that doesn't sound like good news to most of us, does it? We're not like really pumped about the fact that we're going to get excited, but the fact remains that in order to bridge that gap between all of those broken people that Saul had to reach out to and reach, he was going to have to be able to handle a pretty tough road. And we're going to learn a lot about that road as we get deeper into this series. Guys, the reality is, as much as I wish I didn't have to say this to you, sometimes God calls us to do hard stuff. Sometimes God calls us to do things that are out of our comfort zone, things we don't necessarily want to do, go to places we don't necessarily want to go, even to love and to serve people that we don't necessarily want to love and to serve. And sometimes we go because we know it's the will of God. And I'm telling you, I know that this, this kind of sucks, but this is how it goes. Sometimes we go because we know that it's the will of God. And we think, oh, well, because we're in the will of God, even though we maybe went even reluctantly or happily or whatever, we think, okay, well, it's the will of God. So he's going to totally make it preserve the whole path. The ship is going to smooth sailing. It's going to just be awesome. And then we get there and we get hurt. We get attacked or we suffer. Guys, the gospel is such good news that the enemy will do everything that he can to keep you from sharing it. He does not want that news going out into the world. He does not want you to be his, a vessel of that good news to this world. If you can buy into the lie that it is not worth what it is costing you, you're done. You will never be effective for Jesus. Jesus had to really let Paul know from the beginning, dude, this thing is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Now, despite popular belief, Jesus never changed Saul's name to Paul. 
At least the Bible doesn't tell us that he did. Now, it's easy to believe that this happened because especially throughout the Old Testament, right, you get all sorts of instances like that, these covenant things where like Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, Jacob becomes Israel, especially that one because it's like a really transforming moment. Like, dude, you once were this and now you're going to be this, right? And Paul kind of had a moment like that here with Jesus, but that, is not what, but that was not when his name changed. The Bible does not say that anywhere. Paul was not a new identity for Saul, and this is actually very significant. People love to teach that, and to be completely honest, I have taught that before. I've been like, dude, God changed his name that day, and it was sweet. God did not change his name that day. This is not a new identity. Jesus commissioned Saul to reach Gentiles. Saul was Jewish. His Hebrew name was Saul. But his Greek name, his Roman name, is Paul, Latin, Paulus. That is the, is the same name in Latin, in Greek. Or in Latin and in Greek. It's Paulus and I forget, something similar in Greek. Think about this. Acts 13, 9, this happens after, that, after the, his conversion. This is how they talk about Paul. They say, Saul, oh, but we also call him Paul. Saul, who's also called Paul. He's a man with two names on a mission to reach two different groups of people, okay? Saul had a very distinct calling to minister to Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish name Saul, for those of you uh, who are here at Ancient Clip Notes, Austin did a message on a man named Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. So when you're trying to reach Gentiles and you have the, the name of the first king of Israel, that could be a little bit of a, hey, that's definitely a Jew. Like, who are you to tell me how to live my life? You're obviously a Jew. You're obviously Jewish. It's a bridge. It, it, it's, a, it's a barrier. It very well could have been a barrier. It could have been a hindering block. So he goes by one name, he goes by the other name. In fact, in Acts 26, Paul's remembering, he's recollecting that moment when Jesus uh, spoke to him. And this is what he says. He said, actually, Jesus spoke to me in my Hebrew name. He said, he spoke to me in Hebrew saying, Saul, Saul. Jesus called me by my Hebrew name. Now, the reason that to me all of this matters and the reason that I, what I want you to get from this and how I want this to take shape in your life is this. As you're going to see soon, there's a lot in Romans that could cause somebody, that could cause you, that could cause all of us like, to, to, see, to, to see these words, read these words, and feel as if we have fallen so short of the glory of God that he, he has to have run out of patience with us by now, and there has to be, we just must be done, we're hopeless. But listen, whatever it is that you've done, dude, Saul was worse. I promise you that. I promise you that Saul was worse. And as fun as it is to think that Jesus renamed him, in some ways I think it's more powerful that he didn't. Because the same Saul who persecuted Christians and approved of their execution is the same Saul who's writing this gospel in this letter to the Romans. See, Paul, he was already a studied Jew. Think about this, and then think about this in your own life. He's already a Jew. He already loves the scriptures. He loves the Torah. He loves the law. He loves that stuff, right? And so God met him in that place with all that knowledge he already had, and he flipped it on him, and he, he was able to use that as a way to show people, hey, Jesus is actually the Messiah that you were looking for. Now, obviously for Saul, that's easier for some, for Jesus to get a hold of him because he already knows the scriptures and that, you know, that was his thing, right? But I think for a lot of us today, we still have this idea that like when Jesus saves us, we have to rearrange every last detail of our entire lives if we're going to serve him. 
And I do think you need to listen to the Holy Spirit. There's probably going to be some times when the Spirit's like, dude, you need to drop that thing and follow me right now. And you need to drop it and follow him. I, I know that that's part of it. Lay it down, follow. I get it. But a lot of times, I think that we're going to find that God is working in our lives even before we knew it. Even before we acknowledged it. Even before we turned to him. And in a lot of cases, the ministry I believe that a lot of us will one day have, he was preparing us for it the entire time, even when we weren't serving him. It's almost like God breathes on you and you step into who you're called to be. Man, when God breathes on something, it becomes holy. It becomes inspired, man. He breathed on the dirt in Genesis. And suddenly man was formed. Like, think about that. Creation came forth from nothing at the mere breath of the Almighty. All of a sudden, man. And the Bible says that man, right, in other words, breathed on dirt, was made in the image of God. Which means that God can take dirt and he can turn dirt into limitless potential. Limitless potential. And when he breathes on your life, Suddenly, all of those places that you are able to go and all the people that you're in community with that maybe I'm not in community with or maybe Don's not in community with and maybe you get to go places that we can't go because of the way that God has orchestrated your life, suddenly now God can use you to bring him into that arena. This is often how God redeems the people that were like, man, how are you going to get to these people, God? Well, he's going to use people to get to them that you would never expect. Man, that's what Saul's life was. Saul was a very unlikely candidate who led a lot of other very unlikely candidates to Jesus because he let God take a hold of him. So Saul is Paul. Then right away, he goes into the straight into the point of the book. And I know it's kind of hard to like jump from verse to verse because they're all commas and it's literally just the middle of the sentence here. But he says this and kind of halfway through verse one through three, he says, I'm Saul, I'm Paul, I'm set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. These, this is referring to the Old Testament. Concerning his son, which is Jesus, who is descended from David according to the flesh. So first of all, the Holy Scriptures. And again, I know this is a bit of background still for you. In all of the letters of Paul that made it into the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament gets quoted 89 times. Okay? 89 quotes of the Old Testament throughout the entire New Testament by Paul. 51 of those times is in Romans. So Paul wrote uh, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, um, Colossians, Philippians, uh, Philemon, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, um, I th- uh, Colossians, I said, that's all of them, I think. So he wrote more, he wrote, um, he, of all 13 of these that we know he wrote, more than half the references to the Old Testament are in the book of Romans. He uses old stories to show us modern realities, or to show his culture modern realities. And we can do the exact same thing now in our culture, which is amazing. It can still be done today. That's why I love the Bible. It makes it so powerful. Even though the context might be different today, you can still go to the Old Testament, and you can find things that, will, if you apply them properly to your life, it will make your life better even today. Like we, we love to just throw it all out. It's, there's something in there for everyone. And Paul demonstrates how powerful the Old Testament is in his use of it throughout Romans. So he says, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. Or in other words, 
Um, Jesus is not just one of the descendants of David. Like, this is the descendant of David. This is the one that everybody has been waiting for, that everyone has been saying, when's he coming? See, Israel was still waiting, but Jesus had already come, lived, died, and resurrected. He's here now. He's already here. See, the story of Israel, and I'm so glad we did that covenant sermon to kind of begin to lead up to this, and we'll go back to some of that coming up. But Israel knew their story had to culminate somewhere. There was a prophecy from a man named Nathan, and it was spoken to King David, and the prophecy said, David, from your seed, there's going to be a king, and that king's reign will never end. He will always reign. He will always be king. And so for the Jews, it was then centuries after that of waiting and wondering, how is that going to happen, not knowing how it's going to happen, because they went into exile, they lost their kingship, all sorts of things happened. It's like, man, is this going to happen? What, how is this going to happen? And, they, and what Paul's telling us here is that that entire story culminated at Jesus. He's the king that will last forever. And of course, we learn when you read Matthew 1, when you get the genealogy of Jesus, the first thing it's trying to say is, hey, Jesus was a descendant of this guy, David. Now, this is huge. See, for the Jews, this is the only thing that would have mattered. The only problem with that is Jesus was killed. No king could reign forever if they're dead, right? How can this king reign forever because they're dead? So, so there were some Jews that believed, but those who had believed, by the point of the crucifixion, they went the other way. They said, this isn't going to happen. They started looking for another. We read about a couple of them in Luke 24 while they're on the road to Emmaus. And they come in contact with the resurrected Jesus. The resurrected Jesus shows up. And he talks to them, and he's walking with them, and they, they don't even recognize him. Because, of course, they thought he's dead. And when you see somebody who you think is dead, you don't think, oh, that's that dead person. You think, oh, this is just another person. I mean, I, probably if I, if I had much, if, 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 if yeah, I'm not getting, yeah. I'm, you, guys get, you guys get what I'm going for. I don't even need to say it without getting really, like, grim. Okay, so what Jesus does in this moment is he walks. He walks, the, he walks with these men on the road to Emmaus, and he begins to walk them through all the scriptures in the Old Testament, all the passages that he himself had fulfilled in the Bible. And the scriptures uh, that were all about him, but nobody even knew that they were about him. He's walking him through it saying, hey, you know what? You didn't realize it, but this was about Jesus. This was about Jesus. This was about me. This was about me. This was about me. And they did not realize that it was him until he was gone. Right? When you, but when you have a guy who you thought was God and then you stop thinking he was God because he died show back up and show you why he really was God and walk you through the entire thing and say, hey, look, I'm resurrected. Here I am. Here's why I was God. That, that begins to kind of shift things, right? That kind of begins to make you think, you know what, maybe, maybe that was God. Maybe he really is. In Romans 1.4, what Paul does is he really emphasizes the resurrection. He says he's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It's like, this is what proves it. It's the resurrection that proves it. You may wonder, why is the resurrection so significant? Why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ prove that Jesus Christ is God? Well, first of all, everybody else who died stayed dead. With the exception of Lazarus, who only got to live again because Jesus said, live again, come forth, Right? But it was the resurrection that showed us that Jesus was not just a man. He truly is the Messiah. 500 plus people saw the resurrected Christ. And that was enough for them 
They saw it with their own eyes. And because they saw it with their own eyes, they, many of them were will, later willing to lay down their own lives rather than deny him. And rather than deny the fact that he resurrected because it was that real to them. But even beyond that, for Jews in particular, this would have given a fresh new meaning to a passage that they would have always understood a little bit differently. See, in that prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, when Nathan speaks to David, right? Nathan prophesies that from David's seed would come a king, and from that king, uh, there would be, he would reign, and the nation would reign forever, and he would be the king of them forever. And he goes on to talk about the temple in that prophecy, and how someone else would be raised up and would establish that temple. And of course, the Jews, of course, they thought, oh, that's Solomon, because Solomon did. He, David's son, Solomon, did build the temple. But eventually that temple was destroyed. But when later Christians would read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Septuagint is the translation that Paul would always quote from in Romans. So he would read the Septuagint and he'd quote from it. And then when, but when they would read the Septuagint, they would read the Greek version. And when they re-looked at this passage in 2 Samuel 7, in Greek, it actually says, someone would be resurrected who would establish a temple. The holy temple. The place that everybody thought you had to go to connect with God. And again, when Romans was written, Herod's temple still stood. That, that amazing temple, it was still there. But a few years later, it wasn't there anymore. It would fall. And it would never be rebuilt again. And so suddenly people have to decide, well, what does life look like when there's no temple? It's like, well, how do I live a Christian life? It's like, it's like the church goes up in flames, church closes its doors. You're like, well, how do I be a Christian now that I don't have the church? I mean, the church is very important. We need to be a body. That's God's plan for the world, but it's bigger than that. Jesus has been telling us from the beginning, and Paul's trying to tell us this, people, you are the temple. Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, resurrected and established that temple in you. God is breathing on you, and he's giving your life breath and he's making you holy and he's making you an image bearer that to show the entire world what it is that he looks like man god breathes on his people and he says my spirit's gonna live in you now it's gonna live in you now it's gonna rest on you now so we get to be the image bearers of god for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the world watch how paul ends this little wrap-up section Look how he wraps this up. Look at how he wraps us this beginning section. He's not wrapping up the whole thing. Don't worry. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. All the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He ends this brief gospel-filled introduction by saying, oh, by the way, Israel, Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the one you've waited for. He's here for you. He's here to redeem you. But you're not the only ones he did it for. And you're not the only ones who are going to benefit from it. And in fact, I did this in you so that you may turn around and be my witnesses to the rest of the world as to what God has done in your life. This is for the sake of the name of Jesus being proclaimed among all the nations. 
This is for everyone, including you. It's for you, church in Rome. It's for you, church in Detroit. It's for you, Jews. It's for you, Gentiles. It's for you who claim to belong to Jesus Christ. But it's not only for you. That's why it's so important that we grasp this idea that our lives are the temple of the living God. That we were made in the image of God and we were put on this earth to reflect his love to the world that he died for. And the gospel, it's not just some good news, right? That you hear the messenger at your door, he gives you the news, you thank him, you close the door and you go back and put yourself back to bed. That is not the gospel. If we truly grasp what this is, man, we would make our entire lives about it. We would take it to the highways. We would take it to the byways. We would take it to our jobs. We would take it to the streets. We would take it to other countries. We would take it everywhere. That God literally like, it's the power in in verse 16 or 17, it says that the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone. It's the power of God for salvation. That God would actually place each of us in our strategic places in the world to be his strategic bearers of his image, to show them what Jesus is all about. And it's not about condemnation. And it's not about judgment. It's about love. It's about a love that surpasses anything that we could ever even begin to understand. It's the kind of love that can compel a person like Saul who literally hated Christians, who murdered Christians, who approved of their executions, who breathed threats against them. That's how it could compel a man like that to drop everything and spend the rest of his entire life traveling around just to show people how good it is. That's some good news. Jesus wants to do the same for you today. He wants to meet you in your mess. He wants to meet you in the broken places of your heart. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far away you've strayed. He wants to meet you right where you are today. And I want to encourage you today. And if you're far from Jesus in this place, just let him wrap his arms around you today. Let him just wrap his arms around you. If you've been having a hard time dreaming or having a hard time of seeing where do I fit in the plan? Where do I fit in the church? Where do I fit in the mission? Or if suffering has taken such a toll on your life that you're ready to just give up the journey and go do something that you think is going to be easier. It might seem easier for a moment, but in the long run, it's not going to be easier. And be encouraged today that the gospel is worth it. Jesus is worth it. It's worth everything you give. It doesn't always feel worth it in the moment. It doesn't either for me. But I promise you that it is. Keep fighting the good fight. Detroit needs you. Detroit needs us. Detroit needs the church of Jesus Christ to be a reflection of Jesus Christ to it. It needs to be a stinking good reflection of him too. Your friends need you. Our church needs you. Let God breathe life into your circumstances, man. He doesn't condemn you. His kingdom is here and it's now and that's really good news. That's not bad news, that's good news. So let him light a fire in you this morning that propels you to take the good news out into the world today. Man, if it takes it to the ends of the world, let it be, man. Let the gospel do its thing in your life.